Welcome to the Global Hemophilia Report, a podcast led by science, curiosity, and storytelling. Produced by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and supported through advertisements by Sanofi. I'm Patrick James Lynch, your host and resident person with hemophilia. Thanks for tuning in to episode 22. Our topic today, the LGBTQ plus community and hemophilia. We kick off the episode right after this quick word from our featured advertiser. Life with hemophilia shouldn't be defined by limits, and the right education along the way can be helpful. Discover what Sanofi's dedication can mean for you at redefininghemophilia.com. To start us off, Dr. Robert Sidonio shares this personal anecdote. As a heterosexual male, the thing that drawn me to this is that I think I've been drawn to disenfranchised groups. You know, I started out my research largely in trying to advocate for women with bleeding disorders, adolescent girls as well. And, and I remember personally taking care of a patient and talking to the mother. And then I, I felt like this mother was always hiding the fact that she clearly was a lesbian and had a, a partner and adopted a child with a bleeding disorder. And she always used euphemisms and language that would not indicate this at all. And I just kept thinking, what kind of atmosphere do we have that this mother feels like she has to hide this or she doesn't feel comfortable? And we've talked about this in our group. Uh, and it's, I think it's really important to create this sort of what Nathan says, the space where people can communi communicate freely, discuss anything that they feel is important to them. And so I think we just need to do a better job of this. And so I just feel compelled to be a part of the solution. That is powerful. And just like Dr. Sedonio, our expert panel today is fostering openness and understanding in the LGBTQ plus community when it comes to our hemophilia community and treatment centers. Let's get introduced to the panel. My name is Nathan Cannell. I'm an adult hematologist at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, where I'm associate director of the Boston Hemophilia Center. Hi, my name is Nancy Sakari, and I am a pediatric and adolescent gynecologist here in Georgia. I'm Robert Sidonio, Jr. I'm a pediatric hematologist and associate director of the Hemophilia Georgia Center for Bleeding and Clotting Disorders and at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and at Emory University. My name is Greg Blamey. I am a physiotherapist with the Adult Inherited Bleeding Disorders Program in Winnipeg, Manitoba in Canada. And I guess with respect to this particular episode that we're doing, I am also a gay man. And I think that perspective will be incorporated into the comments that I'm gonna have to share with the way that our episode rolls out. Well, hey, everybody. My name is Dakota Rosenfeld. I'm a senior medical science liaison with Genentech Roche. Um, I have severe hemophilia A, and my background is a PharmD or a doctorate of pharmacy degree. I've been a pretty avid advocate within the bleeding disorders community for as long as I can remember, really. So our topic for today is hemophilia and the LGBTQ plus community. Let's start with an important question. Why is this topic meaningful in the first place? Yeah, I think this is a really important topic in general and one of the really difficult areas, which is when a patient is still 
under guardianship, so less than 18, and then transitioning to adulthood. It's very well documented that there's a lot of negative interactions with the healthcare system, either because of discomfort or like a negative past experiences among LGBTQ individuals. There was a survey from the Center for American Progress that found about 47% of self-identified trans individuals reported reported that they avoid the doctor and likely because of negative interactions that they've had in the past. The other thing that's really challenging when an individual is less than 18 is then you're dealing with two patients. So you have the patient that's coming to see you for their need and then usually their parent or guardian. In adolescent medicine, gynecology, psychology, a lot of other aspects of care, we do get an opportunity to talk to that patient in private. But as you can imagine, if the patient is in the LGBTQ community and they're not out to their parents, their guardian, their family, then it poses a lot of challenges and and barriers in states that can still provide evidence-based gender-affirming care in individuals less than 18. You still need parental or guardian consent to start gender-affirming hormones. So for example, like estrogen or testosterone. And so there needs to be dialogue with the parents and the parents need to consent to that. And then in other areas, for example, if somebody is requesting menstrual suppression. And so if an environment or a guardian is not supportive, it makes it a little bit trickier and sometimes impossible to provide some of those needs. Like Greg, I'm also a gay man and I've been involved in healthcare now for several decades through my training and my more specialized work. And for me, that's been its own journey for my own healthcare of how do I interact with the health system? How do I navigate the needs for my own health that are different from heterosexual individuals who are going through through the health system? And as part of this for me, it was really important as I started to take care of more and more individuals in the, the LGBTQ plus community to be able to create that safe space for them. And along with that, It's also been important to be a role model for trainees and others who are building these spaces. I think all I would add is that under the umbrella of individualization of care, um, this to me, why I'm excited about it, and it's so interesting because the first time I heard that term in a hemophilia context was really about individualizing prophylaxis regimens based on, say, PK profiles and things like that. And this is just another example of how we can individualize care to our clients based on characteristics, based on lifestyle, based on their specific needs and that specific person. This is now the important reality is that we are making sure that we are addressing individual needs on an individual basis and speaking to each person as they present. There is a historical intersection between hemophilia and the LGBTQ plus community. The panelists speak to that intersection and its relevance to today, starting with Dr. Nathan Connell. That intersection has so much history to it. Really, you had two communities that were forced together to become advocates for each other in addition to themselves because of common barriers, common discrimination that occurred, and these needs, linked by the fact that both communities were being ravaged by a bloodborne infection that had a lot of stigma around it, 
the hemophilia community and the gay community that came together to advocate for access to medications, access to antiviral therapy, access to support services, and things like the Ryan White Act that be, that was able to um, provide access to those services and tried to really set standards around non-discrimination, it, it helped lift up both communities simultaneously. But the flip side is that the success of that work that has been able to essentially eliminate HIV as, as a risk for many of our patients with hemophilia in the United States um, has started to let the communities drift apart. Um, there's talk of why would we talk about LGBT health in hemophilia? And um, there's a, a patient advocate who had been quoted as saying, as he tried to bring it up in a, in a support group, he was told, why are you trying to bring HIV back into our community? But I think that hemophilia and the gay community will always be connected because of this, regardless of whether we get to a point where we've eradicated HIV from the populations as a whole. Yeah. Remember, the early descriptions were in homosexual men. The first articles that came out in New York Times about it, it was called gay-related immune deficiency before it eventually shifted to HIV and AIDS. But there was a clear intersection there early discussions in which in politics, they didn't even want to say the word HIV or AIDS for many years. And it really took the Surgeon General really had to step outside of some of the cultural beliefs and say, we have to talk about this. We have to address this. It's not a cultural issue. This is like a human issue. And, and one of the things that really made me understand the intersection was if you've seen some of the early Ryan White videos and they're pretty graphic in the descriptions of him. And when he would go to the grocery store, people would yell at him using gay slurs at him. And so just understanding the lack of understanding that intersection and for a large part of the population that just wasn't educated on it, they just kept that connection. And unfortunately, it's taking a really long time to separate those. But like Nathan was saying, obviously the groups had to come together to advocate to, for better. We, a lot of good things came out of, obviously, out of a lot of terrible things. And so, uh, obviously, it was an important lesson that hopefully we never have to learn that kind of lesson before, uh, again, because it's just such a terrible, uh, a terrible tragedy that you still see discussions on social media about governments trying to get compensation, you know, patients trying to get compensation. You see this in the UK and other places as well. And so, this issue hasn't gone away, but that intersection, they're forever you know, uh, intertwined in history. Yeah, I think for me, I'm going to use a really concrete example to, to illustrate how the history resonates for me. Uh, last December, I flew out to Vancouver to watch the opening of a play. The play is called In My Day. And it was written by a member of the hemophilia community. And what it is, it's a verbatim work of contemporary drama that is inspired by a community-based oral history project that was run out of the University of Victoria. And they interviewed dozens and dozens of survivors and caregivers of survivors from the first 15 years of the HIV pandemic in Vancouver. And listening, and, and then the author of this play, who's from the hemophilia community, took those words verbatim and crafted it into this dramatic presentation. This play represented not just the perspective of, of gay men at that time, but 
the perspectives of women and trans folks and indigenous populations, countries that have an indigenous population are probably well aware of the issues that population faces. The IV drug use community, multiple perspectives were incorporated into this dramatization. And I think what's important is how the, the author of the play characterized it to me. At that time, the gay community embraced the members of the hemophilia community who were HIV positive. And I think that this is a way of making sure that as the bleeding disorders community, we are embracing the LGBTQ plus community and showing support and showing recognition. And this is a reciprocal gesture, if nothing else. It's not just a gesture, it's recognition that we are um, returning that same sentiment. And I'm sure most of us here share that sentiment. Dakota, a question for you especially in relation to your hemophilia diagnosis, can you tell us any positive experiences or sources of strength or resilience that you have found within the LGBTQ plus community? Yeah, first and foremost here, I, I think of my partner and he has an affinity for all the adventurous side of things. So he likes to do caving, climbing, wakeboarding, all that stuff that he's been great really at getting me involved in with the, an understanding of my hemophilia. I honestly feel so safe whenever we vacation together because he knows how to mix my breakthrough medicine. He knows who to call in case there's a problem. He knows the order of operations in the event that something goes wrong. And he knows what to watch out for in my affect in the event that something happens. Just this last weekend, for example, I tweaked my ankle. I've got some existing arthritis in my left ankle and I tweaked it. It bent a way that it usually doesn't and probably shouldn't. And I had just a little different, there was a difference in my affect, if you could say that. And he's really quick to pick up on it. And even though we're in the middle of the party situation or a big group gathering, he's really quick to be like, hey, if you need to go home, we can go home and we can chill. It's not a big deal. There's nothing keeping me here. And it's those types of comments that I know that the level of support I have from him is something that not a lot of people may be fortunate enough to have. So I'm eternally grateful. I'd also say my close group of friends is also entirely aware of my condition. And I know any of them would know at least the first order of operation in case I did get hurt and I was with them. And I also wear my medical alert every time we go out. Honestly, it can be a great conversation starter sometimes. They might ask if I'm in the military because I wear a dog tag. Oh, is this a costume? What is your look for the evening? No, it's not a costume. It's a, I have hemophilia. And anybody who asks me about it has always been intrigued by the high level of the condition, obviously. But then even more so whenever they ask, oh, what do you do for work? I tell them I have a FARB-D and I work in the condition that I have. The eyebrows raise and it usually it usually leads to some deeper, more intimate conversations as opposed to the high level, hey, how are you doing? Where are you from? Oh, cool. You've been here before. Blah, 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 blah. Moving on to our next question for the panel. What are your various perspectives on that topic of LGBTQ plus as an underrepresented minority that has not been included as it should have been in hemophilia care? historically. What are your various takes on that? Maybe starting with you, Dr. Sidonio. Yeah, I'm just going to focus on the care of the patient, the medical, just the sort of the sanitary part. And I'm just going to do this. I'm not going to worry about the rest. But as we all know, when we have, we do the comprehensive care model, that's just not good enough, right? It's not good enough to see somebody write a prescription for factor and say, you need to make sure you take your factor and send people on their way. And people bring all of those issues, for example, our patients are screened, they do distress screens. And what we found was there was a lot of financial stress, 
a lot of, we're talking about a lot of teenagers that I'm seeing a lot of other stress and relationships with their parents and then relationships you know, with people of the other, with other gender or the same gender. And we didn't ask what people's preferred pronouns were and we didn't ask anything about their sexual preference. And so that's really changed in the last year or so. I've noticed this on the electronic medical records one, I've been using the wrong pronouns for a long time. Patients never asked me or corrected me. I never even asked. I just assumed. And I know it doesn't define people, but it's certainly an important part of their lives. And when you're talking about particularly you know, young children, teenagers, they need to feel that support. They may not be getting that at home. And obviously, we have these private notes where we can document this stuff so we can make sure that they feel supported. We have social workers we have psychologists that can work with them if they're struggling with identity and these other issues to make sure that they're taken care of. And we need to be there to help them with this. We need to provide those services. I think in terms of the underrepresentation that the gay community and the LGBTQ plus community has experienced over the number of years, when I put it most simply, how can you hear me if you don't see me? We're not even yet talking about the complex medical issues that person might have. We're just talking about how we address people. Anything related to the, the topic of blood and blood donation is an example. And this varies across every country probably, but until extremely recently, in Canada at least, gay men were barred from donating blood based on the fact that they were gay. And that's the bottom line. Marital status, umpteen forms that we used to give patients to fill out on their demographics would ask their marital status at a time when gay men and, and gay women were not allowed to be married. And so we had a lot of structure in our clinics and in society that was so heteronormative based that it sent all kinds of signals to the LGBTQ plus community that a, you are different and you are lesser than. And that's a really difficult place to start from. And I think that has historically played out in people from those communities not feeling represented in, in, in the clinics that they are attending and the services that they are trying to access. Well, you can certainly see this in just the fact that many places, whether it be treatment centers or um, patient social and support groups have struggled with the name of the organization. The spaces that have been created recently to be more inclusive of women and girls and individuals with the potential to menstruate. At last year's Bleeding Disorders Conference, Len Valentino said in a very large session, we've done clinical trials in white men. And we need to be more inclusive of our clinical trials. And we need to understand that just because this works in a white man, does this mean that it will work in a black woman who has a bleeding disorder? It's very hard to do many of these things. So not even through conscious bias, it may be unconscious bias. I think that something that we can certainly explore today with Robert being in a pediatric setting and myself being in the adult setting, how those transitions occur, especially not just around gender identity, sexual orientation, the fluidity of, of sexuality, 
but it's happening at a time when a lot of things are happening in people's lives, not just transition of their care. They're moving out. They're becoming more independent. They're figuring out who they are. And what may have been the case in pediatrics two years ago is not necessarily what it's going to be the first year or two in the adult care setting. And then you have the additional layer of patients and uh, of parents and, and caregivers and who knows what when. And as Greg says, seeing somebody to, to be able to help them as opposed to protecting them simultaneously from unintended consequences of our well-intentioned actions. Unintended consequences can certainly have devastating impacts, however well-intended the actions may be. That's a really important point. So when you know that you're not dealing with a cisgender person or that you're not dealing with a heterosexual person, how does that figure into your providing care to your patients? What are the special considerations? Yeah, even if you remove the discussion about the fluidity of sexuality thing, it's a confusing time for every teenager. When you're talking about preteen to teen, it totally depends on your location. We're located in a fairly large city, but we serve about 80% of the patients in the state come and see us. So we're seeing patients from rural locations. You know, they could be as far as rural Tennessee, South Carolina, or rural Georgia. You know, I think it's really important, one of the things, having a GYN provider in our clinic and, and just making this standard for everybody, regardless of their, their sexual orientation, is the, fam the parents have to step out when we have those discussions. And so that's for everybody. We have this with everybody. And it's difficult for us because it's a hard discussion with some families. And so you can have the conversation with this child to make sure we have separate notes that are private because one of the concerns was that all this stuff was going to be available for parents to look at. And certainly they can go in there and find this information out and maybe uh, the child is not ready to disclose this. And yeah, so it, it's really important that we provide this. We make this just standard discussion. We don't make this a special thing for this population. It's just a standard thing. Everybody gets asked what their pronouns are every time they come. doesn't matter if they said uh, the same thing every time. It becomes just standard discussion. And uh, we have these private discussions as part of the standard of care. And when we take on these patients, I feel like we take on everything, regardless of what's going on, because we want to be their advocate. And it's really nice when you see this transition. And ASH has these readiness transition documents. A number of organizations have prepared these. And so you have these conversations pretty early, 13, 14 years of age, and you continue to have these conversations until 18 to 21. And everybody knows there's a, a spectrum, right? There are 18 year olds that are ready to become adults. And there are 21 year old males that are not even close to ready uh, to take on their own care. And so we do our best. It's sometimes it's not a, a smooth transition. They always know they can call us. Indeed, we all have a different pace of stepping into adulthood, which raises an interesting question. What are the gaps between pediatric care and adult care when we're thinking about patients from the LGBTQ community? How does that impact the transition to adult care? Are there particular issues that you all find challenging? And we will hear from our panelists right after this quick break. Every voice counts, and every story matters. Hearing from others about their lives and sharing your story in return can help the community explore new possibilities for life with hemophilia. 
With that spirit in mind, Sanofi created Heme Sessions. Now streaming on Spotify, Heme Sessions is an album of seven original songs inspired by the real experiences of people living with hemophilia. The stories are as diverse as the hemophilia community and brought to life with genres spanning pop to country. Together, they form an album that uses the power of music to celebrate and connect our community like never before. Search Heme Sessions on Spotify today, H-E-M Sessions, and find inspiration in the stories about the triumphs that are possible when living with hemophilia. I got to think about that one a little bit, but I think with the first question, though, it, it hasn't been anything too negative. You know, maybe in discussions with doctors and answering that orientation question before I came out, but again, I didn't really know until sometime earlier in college. There was a pretty short bridge between knowing I was gay and then when I addressed it to those that was around me. But then at that same time, I could understand the you know, needing to have the discussions about intimacy and considerations for making sure my treatment plan coincided with everything that I like to do on the day to day. Me being gay, I had additional considerations to bring up to the doctor that maybe I shied away from at first. But thankfully, that was a relationship that developed and blossomed over time, for which now it's the same doctors that I've had since I was a kid transitioning into adult care who know me pretty well. And at the same time, I have just that utmost level of comfort and uh, support from them as well. But specifically, I know that HFA, uh, they've got the LGBT chats that were always pretty helpful. And with them doing an LGBT and ally mixer now at all of their meetings, that's really had me pretty elated seeing the support that comes from the national organizations. And then honestly, leaning on my other gay blood brothers and sisters often has been a pretty good source of discussion and just general cackling, if you will. <laughs> I definitely see patients in, in transition and I get them not only from my colleagues in pediatric hematology here in the Boston Hemophilia Center, but also Boston is a big place for people to go to college for a few years. And so I'm meeting people that have moved into the area, are going to be here for a few years, and, and this is their first time away from their home center. And so I, I see a wide variety of, of transition plans in place and information. I take this standard approach for any new visit as I'm going through my history. I'm including it as part of normal questions, and I sit there and I say, are you sexually active? I ask if they have sex with women, men, or both. I never make these assumptions. I use my pronouns. I often have a lanyard that has my pronouns and on it when I when I go into a room, so that people know without even hearing a word that I'm trying to create this safe space for them. I do ask parents to leave the room because I say. This is an adult clinic. You are now an adult, and part of this is being independent of making your own decisions. And so that gives me the opportunity to ask parents or other family members to leave the room, give us privacy for the physical exam to be able to discuss not just sexuality, but things like substance use and safety in the home and all these other aspects that I think are important to understand. But sometimes I find out not from my nursing staff or others, or even the pediatric team, I find out something specific from Kristen, the physical therapist on our team, or Amanda, our social worker, who's exploring different aspects during some one-on-one -on -one time. And so I've used this as an opportunity to say, 
okay, we now have multiple people that have the training and the opportunity to create this space and start to explore it. I'm going to comment just quickly, if I may. We don't ever want to miss an opportunity to examine why we do things the way that we do. We started transferring patients' care from our pediatric to our adult centers when they turned 16. And when we asked, took the time to ask why, it was because that's the age when people in our province can get a driver's license. So they were deemed to be able to drive themselves to the hospital now instead of their parents bringing them. So therefore, they were an adult, they could come to the adult hospital. And we were the first clinic, the bleeding disorders clinic, and that has now mushroomed into other clinics within our center because we've realized that's a more efficient and effective way of doing it for the client. So that's the first thing. And then I just also wanted to say that words really matter. And in fact, I have stopped and our clinic is really has stopped using the word transition because to some people that word doesn't really mean anything, but to some people, particularly in the context of the LGBTQ plus community, that is a very important word. And we wanna be careful with how we use it. We try not to say, to talk about our patients transitioning from one clinic to another. And then the last thing I'll say about that process is we've also always viewed it, we've realized that our patients are in that fluidity of motion, what used to be called transition all the time. It's constant because if you're becoming an adult to an older adult, that's an important shift in your reality. So we've really tried to examine all of the language that we use to make sure that we're not inadvertently sending the wrong message or potentially um, causing offense when obviously none is intended. Uh, this is confession time in a way for me because dealing with the physicality of sex and sexuality as a physiotherapist and how that might play out for the LGBTQ plus community, I'm the author of, of a patient resource that's in use, I understand, around the world in relating to how you limit injuries from sexual activity, that when, you, when it was released, it seemed reasonable and inclusive at the time. It no longer is because the receptive partner in all of the imagery that is shown in that book is a woman. And so when you have a community where a lot of the patients happen to be male, either by birth or transition to becoming male, the context of how injuries happen from a physiotherapy point of view and the, just the physical impacts of an activity like sex need to be discussed in a much more broad context. Are you the receiving partner in intercourse? Are you the penetrative partner in intercourse? So there's a lot of, because the injuries that are likely differ depending which role you happen to be playing. Really comes down to being comfortable having these conversations. How do you begin the conversation about these issues? Are there particular risks, bleeding risks that you're looking for or highlighting? The first thing that I will say is to follow up with what Greg has noted about communication is so important. And if you feel a hang up asking your patient about sex, that's your own problem. Those are your own biases that are preventing you from doing that because all of our patients are sexually active. And so it's part of normal, healthy activity. So understanding that to be able to tailor your treatment, your therapies is actually paramount. So that's the first thing. The second thing is as you're having the conversation, it's about the timing for it. 
you don't want to have this conversation when somebody's just recently had an acute bleed. You may have to bring it up several times in order to get to the point where the individual is comfortable having the conversation or knows that they can bring it up at a subsequent visit. So those are the, the really important things. I really like what Greg was saying about the um, piece of um, the penetrative partner versus the receptive partner. Um, what is your activity? And the terminology that gets used is top, bottom, or verse. But then there's the, the concept now of somebody who's aside, somebody who doesn't enjoy penetrative sex, but has enjoys a lot of other ways in which to be sexually engaged with someone else, understanding that and helping people understand that they don't have to have penetrative sex in order to be connected to another individual can be very helpful for somebody who has hemophilia and is worried about that bleeding risk and helping them understand how to have those commu that communication with their partner. The other thing that I would say is that there are higher rates of body dysmorphia that occur in the community. This desire and push to have a specific body type. And that can then lead to concerns over rejection. So you can talk about the mechanics of sex. You can talk about the psychology of sex. You can talk about acceptance within a community. And all of that can have interfaces with hemophilia or other bleeding disorders in some way. And it absolutely cannot be covered all in one visit. It's always something that comes up repeatedly and being available and having the resources for patients to understand what they can ask when and, and what works for them. And what about for the female members of the LGBTQ plus population who we see in our hemophilia treatment centers? What should we know about that population? Yeah, I, th I think just building on what Nathan and Greg said, that it's important to have these conversations about the ways and just make it part of the, the general discussions, how we say how to avoid bleeding events, what are bleeding, what are things that could lead to bleeding? And, and that includes sexual activity and intimacy. And so I think it's important to bring that up. So I think when you ask this every visit, you discuss it every visit. I think now when a bleeding event happens, the nurses feel comfortable asking and they can ask some additional questions, whether it was something like this. We have this conversation about like hematuria and blood in the urine. The nurses know I'm always going to ask about masturbation if that was part of it led to it and say this is this is a normal thing. Uh, just need to be aware of this, that they can happen. Prophylaxis is important around these kind of events. And so you'll be surprised a number of kids that do say, okay, I think that's probably what led to that. And so there's a lot of mucosal bleeding, particularly you're talking about women as well and their relationships. And we talk about this. I remember one time there was a patient of ours who's a woman with hemophilia and she actually called and was wanting to discuss her first sexual encounter before it happened, like things that she should look, should be worried about or concerned about. And I remember the nurses were like, surprisingly, she's calling us. And I said, we've obviously created an environment she has no problem calling us. And we felt like that was a great thing that we had talked to this person. They felt comfortable when they were ready, then they wanted to have reinforcement. We talked about antifibrinolytics, how they're good for all kinds of mucosal bleeding. If you have any concerns about it, you could pre-treat. Obviously, it's always, we always laugh about this with men, women, regardless. People want to know about giving prophylactic factor or antifibrinolytics. It's not like you want to ask if a mood killer, if you're going to ask, should I go ahead and dose up or not? You obviously don't want to be too uh, forward with it. 
And so understanding that it is okay to be prepared for it. And if it does or doesn't happen, it's fine as well. It's clearly, it's a safe thing. And so we just try to really discuss it in the clinic. Yeah, I think, and what Nathan was mentioning about body dysmorphia is so important. I had one patient who referred to me casually, he referred to himself as gay fat, but straight thin. Now, I knew exactly what he meant as a gay man. I knew exactly what he meant. But in our team meeting after clinic, I spoke with our psychologist to say something came up in my physio evaluation that I think is something that I need to put on your radar with this particular individual. And I wasn't sure what her assessment that day at clinic had been and what it had involved. But we were able to share that information and we're able to, if a red flag comes up, we're able to work together behind the scenes to make sure that we are treating the whole person. So I think we do that really well. Injuries to males, particularly, I feel as a physiotherapist, I refer to myself routinely as a movement broker. Your ability to move or lack of ability to move is going to have an impact on every sphere of your life. It's going to have an impact on your occupation, your recreation, your sexual health. And if you have, and I'll give you two examples, if they have a bleed or a a target elbow or something like that, I will often say to people, now I notice this is in your dominant arm. And if we talk about masturbation and if that's the hand that they prefer to use, if it's a male patient, that's somehow, that's sometimes the way that a physical injury turns into a discussion about a sexual health improvement that we can make. And it's really important what Nathan said about this is not just intercourse. I want to communicate to people that whatever activities you enjoy that contribute to your sexual health, if there is a movement-based impairment that you are experiencing, I would like to be able to help you with that. We talk about sexual health and sexuality, and that's what we are there to provide is comprehensive care. That was a term that that we chose. The community, the, the treatment team community said that's what we're offering. <laughs> so that's what we need to offer. I gather it's important being aware and creating the open environment, right, for a discussion of sexual lifestyle and integrated with the potential for bleeding. The sexual activities, whether it's heterosexual or LGBTQ plus sexual activities, it's about their self-expression. Did I sum it up right? I would say that there are probably some specific aspects of the care of these individuals that is a subset of overall sexual health. But I think that some of it has to do with the assumptions that we as care providers make about our patients in these conversations. For the men who have sex with men community in hemophilia, if they're going to be the receptive partner, talking about prophylaxis and things that can increase risk of bleeding, and knowing that there are individuals in the community who choose to forego traditional barrier methods of HIV prevention, such as condoms, and prefer to use PrEP, for instance. And what are the risks of infection with this? And what are the risks of bleeding in individuals who aren't using barrier contraception? We don't know the answers to nearly any of these questions. If you look at, if you go into PubMed and you search LGBT health and bleeding disorders or and hemophilia, you get zero hits. And I think that to your question about are there aspects that are different We like to think they are, but that's anecdotal from all of our clinics. We really have no data on what are 
the differences between the heterosexual population and and the homosexual population. What are the differences between a cisgender and a transgender person with a bleeding disorder? We don't know the answers to those questions, but it's a huge area that's ripe for research. And so any question becomes a great research question around this because we're starting with nothing. Even when you look at data sets, um, there's, they, they're starting to expand past male and female, but usually it's just a category don't want to disclose. And so that doesn't really help us when, with regards to research. So, and Nathan and I have talked about this. If we're not even collecting this information, even from the CDC or other national groups, we're not going to, we're going to continue to not know anything about this. And we're going to make some assumptions. We're trying to make some reasonable, educated guesses about this in this population, but it ends up being anecdotal things. When they happen, you might remember the one or two cases, and that's just not the way we should be taking care of patients. We should be applying the same methodology, the same sort of structure, the same everything that we do with clinical research and apply it so we can learn about this population. And so I think it's important. We've had discussions at ISTH about trying to do a better job of this as well. And maybe forming some working groups that can explore this a little bit better. And it reminds me a little bit about when I've talked to the, some of the women in our women's health group who were there when women's health was a working group. It wasn't a, you, you remember this, it was not deemed as worthy enough to have its own research group. We conclude our conversation with our expert panel right after this quick break. Every voice counts and every story matters. Hearing from others about their lives and sharing your story in return can help the community explore new possibilities for life with hemophilia. With that spirit in mind, Sanofi created Heme Sessions. Now streaming on Spotify, Heme Sessions is an album of seven original songs inspired by the real experiences of people living with hemophilia. The stories are as diverse as the hemophilia community and brought to life with genres spanning pop to country. Together, they form an album that uses the power of music to celebrate and connect our community like never before. Search Heme Sessions on Spotify today, H-E-M Sessions, and find inspiration in the stories about the triumphs that are possible when living with hemophilia. Can we talk for a moment about transition and gender-affirming surgery in transgender community, especially transgender women, and the particular considerations about bleeding that we all in the hemophilia community ought to be aware of? What can you share about that? I'm glad we're getting a chance to talk about the transgender population because it's been a group of people who have been historically marginalized, even within the LGBTQ community. And then, of course, we are living in a time where laws are being passed and very discriminatory practices are being pushed. And so we think about gender, male and female, which is typically what we assign someone at birth just based on appearance of genitals. And so there's no biologic testing that occurs to say that this is a boy or this is a girl. But what is in our head? What is in our exterior expression? Gender is a social construct. What sh clothing should I be wearing? What 
role should I be taking in this meeting? What kind of interaction should I have is derived from the gender assigned at birth, but is really truly a social construct. What I tell patients is that I can control what happens in this room between you and me. I can work to control what happens with other members of my team and the front desk staff, but I may not be able to control someone who is in a call center that I've never met who takes the phone call for you to set up a lab appointment, for instance. And understanding that I can't fix things that I don't know about. The point that Robert made earlier about individuals who for years have never corrected clinic members about their pronouns is an important aspect. There's a lot of hiding. It's an evolution. It's understanding. And I think later in this, we'll talk a little bit more about harm reduction and embodiment goals. And I think that framing it from harm reduction allows us to take away some of our own social pressures and biases that we may have or exist within the political environment to say, let's do what's right for this person in front of us. The proper nomenclature for um, um, for women and girls with hemophilia, and, and that includes those with the potential to, met, to menstruate. It was a pretty difficult discussion initially, and I thought, man, this just seems so easy. If they have levels less than 50%, they have hemophilia. Just It's not complicated. Why are we making this so complicated? But it's this sort of intersection and, and this social construct. And so I think it's just important that we do this. We create the environment for our patients that's acceptable. And oh, these are patients that look up to us. And I would hate to have to do something and, and disappoint a patient. And so... I think it's just important that we evolve and learn. That was a difficult lesson for me about using women with hemophilia. First talk I gave on this, there were comments, a chat came up saying, he is not being inclusive. And I just kept thinking, dang, like not even one minute into my talk and I'm already getting all these negative comments. And it was tough. And over time, I I would accept it. Okay, we can do better. I think where the trans community maybe has some particular challenges is But I think part of the issue for the trans community is they run into people who don't understand what transgenderism is, means, how it impacts a person. And unless you have the most highly developed poker face ever, when you come across something that you don't understand, it registers on your face. And anything that looks, sounds, or smells like judgment or lack of understanding is a communication killer. And for the trans community, when they engage with people, if they probably run into that barrier to moving forward more often than lesbians do or gay men do, I'm going to guess. And I think that acknowledging that we don't understand is is a good start, but it is then it behooves us then to improve our understanding, a much greater understanding of what this community is and what they need. I think one of the important aspects that you bring up is that the therapy that somebody's using to achieve their embodiment goals may not be congruent with the therapy that they need to treat their underlying bleeding disorder. So for instance, if we have an individual who is having heavy menstrual bleeding, one of our very first therapies in von Willebrand disease, for instance, is combined hormonal contraception. And so using these pills, so we're giving doses of estrogen. But if you have an individual that is assigned female at birth, that you are managing heavy menstrual bleeding, but their gender identity is male, 
and they are trying to achieve that, they're trying to avoid estrogen. You're trying not to give them estrogen. So then how do you shift your therapies and think about this? In the perioperative setting, we know that individuals who are, are transgender have an increased risk of thrombosis. And so we're trying to thread this needle by possibly giving them factor, but not giving them so much that they run a thrombosis risk because we're also trying to maintain a certain hormonal status and doing varying degrees of surgery, some of which are intra-abdominal, some of which are external and more plastic surgery based. We have individuals who are undergoing breast construction surgery. And if there's even a small amount of bleeding, you run the risk of nerve loss and nerve damage that then is going to affect future sensation and sense and sexual function. So all of these come together. And it again comes back to we need research around this. And we need it done in an apolitical sense of we know that people are going to need surgery. And how do we actually manage them? Because we want to reduce the risk of bleeding and thrombosis, which is so detrimental to our community. So I'm going to answer this from the perspective of someone that is transmasculine and perhaps has a bleeding disorder. Is that what we're trying to? Okay. So we, I do see this quite frequently. We have a lot of ways to control heavy menstrual bleeding among populations with bleeding disorders. All of those options remain options for somebody that identifies as transmasculine. Those that identify as transmasculine might be more motivated to have no period or period suppression rather than just a lighter or more regular or shorter period. Um, so we may focus our discussion a little bit more on um, menstrual suppression. Um, and even in transmasculine individuals that are on testosterone therapy, in the literature, anywhere between 7 and 25% of those individuals may still have some breakthrough bleeding after a year of testosterone use. Um, so if that happens, there are several protocols and publications about ways to mitigate um, breakthrough bleeding um, in transmasculine individuals on testosterone. Um, and usually we start by um, evaluating the bleeding and make sure it's not due to something like a cervicitis or some type of infection, um, something that could be dangerous to them. Once that rule is ruled out, then you can um, make sure that their uh, testosterone dose and level is optimized. And then you can go back to all the things that we know about hormone therapy, like using continuous progesterone to suppress any type of bleeding. That was helpful in understanding a bit more about hormone therapy. Thank you. And I just want to make sure that we don't miss a point. Nathan, do you want to comment about the mental health component? So we know that individuals in the LGBT community um, have high rates of uh, uh, depression and anxiety. Um, if you look at data from the Trevor Project, you can see that a significant number of individuals in the community have thought about suicide or have attempted suicide in recent years. Um, and then if you also look at the hemophilia community, we know that individuals in the hemophilia community have a high rate of post-traumatic stress syndrome and post-traumatic stress disorder. And there's an upcoming paper um, in RPTH, which will actually explore this and discuss some of these aspects. I think mental health is, is huge in the bleeding disorders community and the LGBTQ community, regardless of their bleeding disorder or medical history. 
I think we outlined clearly there are huge knowledge gaps and we always hope that this, um, and, and there probably need to be some papers that help outline some of these things because nobody knows anything about this. And so I think hopefully we've outlined some of these issues. There's so many of them and that will inspire the next generation of young investigators to, to tackle this. And what do you think is the first step? Beginning a research program, determining what that research program should focus on, where do we start? Yeah, Nathan had mentioned this in other discussions. I think that may be, it may be worthwhile if we did a review paper on this. It would be a short review paper because there isn't anything out there. It's going to be a lot of expert opinion. And so I think this is something that groups like ISTH and other groups should probably tackle and then help outline what the research agenda should be. There are other groups like the National NRB that NHF has, and these are things that they can outline as well to hopefully get people to organize them to say, okay, I'm going to take on this topic. It was listed here. Funders love this kind of thing where you can pull a paper and say, this paper says this clearly is a knowledge gap. We're going to tackle this. And I think that's probably the first step other than addressing our infrastructure and our databases, which really don't capture this community to make sure that the terminology is included, that we're asking about orientation, we're asking about preference, these kind of things. So we can just at least show that this is a common issue. And once we do that, then I think we can move forward and actually tackle some of these issues. I know your question is about like clinical knowledge gaps, but I think we need to start with kind of legal advocacy to get to where we should be to really try to optimize the care. In general, something that we're doing at my institution that I'm really proud of is we're investing in behavioral health. And the WPATH specifically recommends biopsychosocial assessment to determine readiness for gender-affirming hormone replacement therapy and in, in places where you're able to provide that care. And if we don't have the behavioral health infrastructure and providers to do that, then it's a huge roadblock to our patients um, starting therapy, but also just getting the mental health care that, that they may need. Greg, any final thoughts from you? Uh, I think all I really want to say is that I, I think that what I would like to see healthcare going forward is I would like to see formal relationships being forged with LGBTQ plus organizations. As in most communities who have particular needs, special needs, there are a lot of, there's a lot of organization within that community that can help provide the information that we require in order to do our jobs in a better way for that community. And we've done a great job over the years of forming these formal partnerships with other healthcare specialties as we've needed them. You know, a hemophilia clinic reaching out to dentistry as an example, reaching out to genetic counseling, reaching out to hepatology. And I think what, what we really need to do is make sure that we are forging these relationships with LGBTQ plus um, organizations, recognizing that there's a gap in what we don't know, what we need to know, and that those are the kinds of groups that might help us bridge that gap and get us to where we need to be. And that brings us to the end of episode 22 of the Global Hemophilia Report. We have covered a lot of ground today. We discussed the historical intersection of the LGBTQ community and the hemophilia community. We talked about transition from pediatric care to adult care, openness around sexuality, challenges experienced by members of the LGBTQ community while living with hemophilia, mental health, 
and future research. Thank you to our panelists for that inspiring conversation, and thank you for joining us as we bring LGBTQ and the hemophilia communities even closer. Thanks again to our esteemed panel and our advisors, and thanks as well to our senior advisor, Dr. Donna D. McKelly. Thank you, Sanofi, our featured advertiser, for making this program possible. And thank you to everybody at Bloodstream Media and Believe Limited. Please subscribe to the Global Hemophilia Report wherever you listen, and share this episode with friends or colleagues who you think would benefit from its content. For links to any of our previous Global Hemophilia Report episodes, visit globalhemophiliareport.com. Please subscribe to the Global Hemophilia Report wherever you listen and share this episode with friends or colleagues who you think would benefit from it. For links to any of our previous 18 Global Hemophilia Report episodes, visit globalhemophiliareport.com and stay tuned for our next monthly podcast. Thank you to our producer and the whole production team here at Bloodstream Media. My name is Patrick James Lynch, and you've been listening to the Global Hemophilia Report. Until next time. Sanofi seeks to expand the idea of what's possible for the hemophilia community. Take a deeper look at the science behind hemophilia and an important connection between factor activity levels and potential activities at levelsmatter.com.